Welcome to the Lateral Dialogues, a podcast series by the Lateral Space. Podcast episodes that will bring you different perspectives on team and leadership dynamics. The Lateral Dialogues will inspire those leading, being part of, or coaching and consulting to today's organizations. Welcome to the Lateral Dialogues, the podcast series by the Lateral Space that aspires to bring to you different perspectives on organizational and leadership dynamics. My name is Warren Hoffman, co-founder of the Lateral Space, a small consultancy that focuses on organizational collaboration and team effectiveness. I'm here together with, uh, with Petro Zoratis, the other co- uh, co-founder of the Lateral Space. Hi from me as well. Great to be here and to have another episode together, Warren. Today's episode is, um, I think it's a very, very special one because we, we are, we've been talking about this topic, uh, Petros and I, quite, quite a long time already. And, and we, we start to call it like the hidden hierarchy. And it's a topic that comes up a lot. And actually, if you work with teams and if you work with groups, then it's something that once you see it and you see how it affects dynamic, then you cannot unsee it. And then it becomes very prominent in, in every room and every group you work with. So hidden, hidden hierarchy, maybe Petros, could you say a bit more about actually what we mean with that? Yes. Maybe the simplest way to think about the topic of today is whether there is some sort of hidden order within teams or in, in interactions with others in working situations, when we have to collaborate, when we have to work together. And we will explore this particularly when we are operating outside of the formal hierarchical structure of the organization. So we know that our roles, whether they are leadership or not, uh, managerial or not, they are bound by a certain organizational structure. We have reporting lines, we have uh, supervisors that are responsible to hire us, that they are monitoring our performance. And all of that creates the hierarchical structure of the organization and where also decisions are being made around what are the rights of its role within an organization. But we also know that very often we are encouraged to, or and sometimes we absolutely have to, operate outside of that structure or that structure is not so clear enough to know exactly how we need to collaborate with one another. And in all of those situations where, whereby the formal hierarchy of the organization is not clear or is not relevant, we are questioning today whether there is some hidden hierarchy that comes in. And by the way, this hidden hierarchy may still exist also, even when there is absolute clarity about what is the formal hierarchical structure. I hope with, with our conversation, we'll make it much clearer, but I think it's a very important topic because when I came across this, I realized it had a very strong impact in us, in our behavior. And even more, I realized we are very much preoccupied on it without realizing that we are. So it's in such a subconscious or unconscious level that we are preoccupied with some sort of hidden order, hidden hierarchy that exists or that might exist or that we are trying to decode for ourselves, but we are also not recognizing that we do so. And yet it has a lot of impact to our work interactions, but also to the teams that we are in. And that's why I think it's a very interesting and relevant topic for all of us to explore today. That sounds very interesting. Also, it sounds like very impacting to a team, but maybe to take it one step earlier, because I think it's nice if you could share something, how you came across it for the first time, Petros, where you, where you got the, 
uh, the idea of hidden hierarchy in your in your research? Yes, my doctoral research, which is also directly linked to our own consulting practice, was focused on the experience of executives when they have to collaborate, when they have to interact in uh, situations that are informal and hierarchy is not intervening. So to, to give examples, very often executives that come from different parts of the organization, they need to come together on enterprise challenges, or they need to come together to clarify some ambiguity that the current ways of working cannot address. Examples of that would be whether there is an opportunity in a commercial space that currently hasn't been thought through from the current ways that a company innovates or creates new product. So who can initiate that? Which executive should initiate that? Or certain executive recognizes that in their own area, there is something of impact from another department and needs to resolve that cross-functionally. Typically, in those situations, there isn't clarity as to how to do that. Sometimes there are not forums or structures that allow that. And it, those are the moments that we would refer to, and I focused on in my research, as lateral leadership or lateral collaboration, where you don't always expect that you will go to the boss, uh, you will present the problem and the boss will say, yes, uh, go to your peer or to the other leader and resolve it. So this mediation doesn't exist. So we know from our practice, we know also from other research and literature, this is a very difficult form, what we typically refer to as leading without formal authority. Uh, so I was very curious to understand um, what are those challenges and why do they come up? And I researched that from the individual experience of that. So how do leaders, how do executives experience those challenges when they are in that moment? And what are their inner thoughts? Um, also, how does this relate to their own individual leader mo leadership models that they hold in mind through by how they have developed throughout life, throughout life experiences and throughout uh, other leadership experiences that they hold? All of that was for the purpose of understanding more broadly how can we approach those situations and why are they so challenging and how can we facilitate them in a better way? So when I was conducting this research, I was interviewing different leaders who were describing a variety of situations, uh, not necessarily always within that context of executive collaboration that I described, but throughout their careers, they were describing situations that they found profound for their own leadership style. Uh, some of them were as leaders of others, some of them were as subordinates of others, some of them were in peer uh, relations. One of my participants in my research was a leader who described some situations that their structures were quite flat. It was someone who also had a preference to operate in an inclusive, egalitarian, we would say, way where everyone is equal, where everyone should contribute equally and differences in levels should not dictate what is the bandwidth of each of our roles. And in, in that particular narrative, what was fascinating is that I started to notice more and more a certain preoccupation as those descriptions occurred about levels. So on one hand, it was about flat structures and groups of people coming together in a flat way and very collectively approaching the task. On the other hand, as those narratives were explained, there was 
constantly a description of their differences in levels, whether that was in their age, whether that was in uh, the experience that they held, uh, how long they were in roles, so the tenure either in the organization or in, or in roles, even in the scope also of the accountability, whose sort of business was uh, bigger or smaller, and all of that in a form of comparing that group and creating actually an, an order within that group that uh, when they were operating, similarly, it was not there. So that finding in itself was not so interesting in isolation, but because I was so alert by this data set, I went back to the entirety of my, my data set and I found it everywhere. And that was what fascinated me. And I thought I need to figure out why that is. There were situations where somebody would be early in their career and they would start thinking, oh, my, I am entering this role and others who have this role comparably to me are much older. Or uh, I am in a team and I am the oldest and uh, actually everyone else is much younger. So because it was so constant, I figured out there is something to be understood. And, and when I speak about it, we can all recognize it and maybe also could say, so what? I mean, this is something that, of course, it happens. But because of um, when doing research, you are in a bug. Uh, you have the bug of trying to figure out what's the meaning of this if it is so persistent. And then I, I realized, actually, it has a function and a very important function, but we don't really understand it or we don't make it explicit. And I would argue that we need to make this more explicit since it does have such persistent uh, of a preoccupation that we might hold. Yeah, it sounds very fascinating. And so basically in every group, in every place where people come together, they rank the others towards themselves. So they make a ranking on where they are in that group, but they also rank the others where they should be or where they are in their mind in that group. Yes, I refer to it uh, in my research and, and more broadly as mental ranking because that's something that happens in the mind. But I do think that is not conscious. I do. I don't think that we realize that we rank ourselves and we and we rank others in the room. But we automatically do it. So I think the easiest way to recognize this is when we are in a room with a new group of uh, in a working meeting in a new group and we introduce each other and by doing so we start uh, referring to the years of experience we have, we might refer to age, not always, but we might refer to our careers also or the education that we have and so forth, but in ways that can be ranked. Not only we talk about our qualities and our styles from a more diverse point of view that it's not necessarily rankable, we also do it in a form of ranking. That is something that is, I think, not by accident. Actually, even it's more interesting to recognize when do we find ourselves using more of those attributes when uh, we introduce ourselves or when others are doing so and when not. And that is a way of recognizing that there is some sort of implicit preoccupation that we don't know why we use it. So this mental ranking starts when you enter a group or you become part of a group and it can be a new group or like an established group. But why, why would we do this? What would be like the driver of people of us to create this ranking? I think when I, when I tracked back that process and when did it matter in research, but then also later in practice. So for example, in executive coaching, that also comes up. 
I think an important piece is that this is how we have learned throughout life to understand our own identity and our own value, so to speak. So it starts by schooling and the grades that we get and how we compare ourselves amongst peers. So that refers to our own value in terms of capabilities. But it also relates to something that is very human and very important, which is the order. So very in a very traditional sense, uh, if you are in a large family and maybe there is an order to be met based on the age of the children and the siblings. So I'm not saying that this actually does exist, but that is a little bit how our mind is operating. And that's where the age thing comes in. So there is something around that is purely hierarchical. And by that, we mean some social rules that in modern times, they are not so relevant anymore. But in the past, there were absolutely strict rules around that, uh, which has to do with order, but also uh, something about recognizing our own value, which is something more competitive by comparing ourselves amongst others. And that is something that can give us confidence, but it can also give us a certain anxiety if we feel that we are lagging behind. But when it comes to the work situation, when when we are entering a role, we are using those terms, we are assessing ourselves, our own value with the role. So we are saying, do I have the required years of experience for that? Have I experienced the challenges that this role is meant to fulfill in other circumstances? Am I maybe too young for this role and therefore I perceive myself as having the potential but have to prove myself in it? That is when it comes to value. But then also when we are entering a team of peers, then we begin to think, oh, uh, we are the newcomer here and others have had this role already five years before me. And therefore I should respect that in terms of rights. And that, that already sounds like quite tricky, right? Because maybe we don't have all the time in the world in organizations to wait for an equal tenure or these social norms that we hold consciously and unconsciously may not be very helpful. But in a a way, they drive a lot of behavior and how we are perceiving the rights that we have, the decision rights that we have, or the rights to take leadership, the license to take leadership in certain roles based on that order. That is a way that I considered and I saw also within the data that we are are using on an individual level this mental ranking in order to figure out the world, but actually to figure out our place in the world, both in terms of rights and obligations, but also in terms of value. At the same time, if we reflect on how mental ranking is being used by teams collectively, because that's also a phenomenon that we also observe together uh, in our uh, coaching practice, but also I attracted in, in my research, that um, especially in, in the more uh, contemporary models of organization design, where there is a lot of agile work, when there is a lot of inclusivity, but also in terms of current social norms, where we are expected to be more inclusive and more flat. We are not expected to have these strict levels of hierarchy or to operate based on those level differences. This actually mental ranking and preoccupation with levels in the room became stronger than in a typical hierarchical structure. That means that because our current situations at work are far more asking us to operate outside of this formal order that might exist, 
it means that we might find it more troubling if our minds is, are programmed to socially operate in a certain order. That's how we basically individually work with it. And that's how we deal with it. And that's how we also create it. But then I think the question is, if you if you look at teams, how does it show up in a team? And how does this mental rank, because if we all do it, but we might not all do it the same, then it basically become this kind of cacophony of rankings in a room, in a team. So how does it play out in a team? Yeah, so I think if we if we look into this preoccupation, as I said, uh, of mental ranking or hidden hierarchy in a group setting, in a team setting, it becomes quite important to figure out and also quite problematic at times. So most of the challenges that we need to team up with and to collaborate in will require us to operate and approach each other outside of formal ways of working, no matter how thoughtful we might be around, you know, where does my role start and finish and where does your start and finish? Most of the situations that will be challenging for us will be where we don't know exactly the rules of the game. We cannot figure out exactly who has decision rights over the others. And of course, we know there are a multitude of very thoughtful and good processes that can help us in create some sort of structure in the absence of hierarchy. Again, agile work is a type of approach that advocates for that and is giving a lot of help around that. But I think that in most situations, what we are confronted with in terms of groups is two extreme thinking models. One is either that we are too hierarchical and therefore we are operating with explicit rules of the game and we have to respect our reporting lines, the scope of each of our role. And the way to deal with that is by uh, forgetting all of our differences that include also differences in levels. And by differences, I mean how differently we might be invested in the problem that we are solving, how differently in terms of stakes, what would it mean for me and for you if we solve this problem? That could have different implications, how you can contribute to it and how I can contribute to it in terms of our uh, functional roles, but also our capabilities are also very different. So all of those differences are very difficult to grapple when they are not explicit rules of a game, because when we are trying to create rules in the moment, there can be a lot of suspicion about our intentions. There can be a lot of fear that we might end up in a conflict or that we might be misunderstood by others. And the best way to avoid all, all of those fears is by creating equality or having rules of democracy. But we should think that democracy and equality is just another very formal rule that replaces the rule of hierarchy. So even though we are actually maybe not seeing in, in that moment that we are formal in how we operate, implicitly we become very formal, but because we can't sp not spontaneously say, well, actually, I think that in this topic, I should take the lead or my voice should have more weight than yours. It's a very difficult thing to say. So in avoidance of all of that and how this idea of hidden hierarchy comes in is that we are unconsciously preoccupied. How are we going to escape this rule of equality and these rules of democracy? How are we going to do this? If we need to come to a decision, 
that that it's not about voting and then the you know the majority of team members who voted win and that's how we prioritize that's not the effective way of doing it or that all of the priorities have to fit in so that everyone has a sense that we are all equal when we have to differentiate in other ways then we might start creating this mental ranking. So we might start to think, well, you are longest in the role, so maybe your voice should be stronger. Or this person is the oldest in the room, most experienced, most respected, and therefore they may have a higher order. And these are the ways where we we might try to create a certain order which appears to be commonly socially accepted, but it's not very helpful for the task itself. It may not serve the right decision-making process, but it is chosen implicitly and unconsciously by us in order to escape this very uncomfortable feeling that we might have now to have a power fight in the room because we need to differentiate in terms of roles and in terms of voices. And that reminds me actually of, of a spell show I saw on the television uh, a while ago, which and, and it was very interesting actually from a group dynamic perspective, like 10 people, and they didn't know each other and they were dropped together in a foreign country where they had to survive for, I think, 10 days and they had to go through all kinds of puzzles that they had to make or all kinds of pathfinding missions that they had to go on. And then the painful part was that every evening they had to send someone home So eventually one would stay over and that would basically be the winner. What became very painful also for the group, but also very clear if you watched it, that the first day these 10 people were dropped somewhere. They didn't know where, they didn't know each other. And then one of these people basically naturally started to express leadership and started to also become the leader of the group. And then in the evening, if they had, when they had to send someone home, they chose him. So they basically got rid of the leader. And the next day was a new day. They had to go on new adventures, new puzzles, and some other person would basically start to take leadership. And again, the second night, that person was also sent home. So they started to see this. And the third day, of course, no one wanted to express leadership because if I express leadership, I will be killed by the group. Eventually, someone had to become the leader. And again, this person was killed by the group again. So you can imagine the dynamics that it brought in the group And especially the second part that you shared, uh, was where you uh, start looking at, okay, so maybe what is leadership and should leadership maybe be situational or on different tasks? And actually, that's what the group found out themselves, that they didn't need a overall leader, but they needed a specific person that would, for example, lead the way in pathfinding. But then when they came across a puzzle they had to solve, someone else who was better in, in, in solving puzzles would take naturally the lead. And they had one person that was very experienced in finding food. So in the evening when they had to find their meal in nature, that person would become basically the leadership person to take on this leadership role on, on finding on finding food. But what was striking, I think, was two things. One, that, they've, that they started to find these different leadership roles in different tasks, but also at the first that they, in the first couple of days, that they really benefited from having a leader and having this order in the group. But on the other hand, and that's, I think, then the paradox, they couldn't stand it because it also broke the kind of the equality in the groups. One person became more important than the others and the other people liked it because it, it helped them forward, but couldn't stand it. So they also killed him. <laughs> yes, indeed. These types of shows are very interesting and fascinating to observe because you see so many group dynamics. 
I think also in what you say, which is so important to acknowledge, is that these shows, because they want engagement in audience and they want a lot of drama that comes from uh, human dynamics, they do build in this very explicit phenomenon of competition. So it's not by accident that in each episode or how, how often this happens, somebody needs to leave and it's almost as if the group has to kill someone each time. They built that competitive mechanism because I also think if it wouldn't be there, if those shows didn't need to produce a winner through this structure, they could run the risk of being very boring in terms of the dynamics that occur because people might be too polite, uh, they might be to each other and so forth. But what actually happens with exactly the situation that you describe is that the group is confronted with two polar opposite needs. And the one thing is to collaborate and be companion and being together in this all on the same level. And by that, I mean that we need to work together in order to survive. But the other side of that is to compete. In the case of the game is to compete about producing a winner. But that competition could also occur when we are comparing ourselves as to who contributes the most or in case of a wrongdoing, whose fault was the most. And therefore, we run the the risk of the phenomenon of scapegoating someone, finger pointing someone and so forth. This contradiction between companionship, I would say, but also rivalry at the same time is something that exists within groups anyhow, especially within frat groups. It exists among siblings uh, when they grow up, uh, that on one hand, they really love each other and they identify with each other and they are one union. And on the other side, they do have this uh, sort of murderous urge to kill each other. And that's something that is very much deep in our psyche and can get enacted actually in, in those situations. I think this contradiction between collaboration and competition, we we know it it is very common to be referred to also within organizational teams. One of the things that uh, maybe as an idea or or an image is preoccupying us is this idea of promotion. So I said it's about also this idea of who is more contributor and and we are using, uh, we are creating a certain ranking within the group at times of difficult emotions when we have to deal with failure or where the challenge is overwhelming. Um, We cannot cope with that so easily, those feelings. The instinctive response to a group is to create a ranking of that so that in itself it begins to differentiate. So I want to identify as someone who is actually contributing as opposed, and therefore I'm finger pointing to someone else. But another uh, thought that comes to mind is this idea of hierarchy indeed, because today we are working together and we are all equal, but maybe tomorrow one of us might be the leader. That's why also in the show that you described, the one that actually has to take a leadership role because otherwise the the group cannot function begins to be the one that is seen as the enemy because that immediately makes the rest of the team weaker. Sooner or later, I might be the last. And therefore, the way to fight that is by immediately attacking the first. And so in a work setting that I think also exists, that as soon as our ways of working create someone in a more leading role, 
it becomes threatening. It's an instinctive response. It's not that we are consciously saying, oh, I feel threatened by someone else's leadership and I want to fight them. That's, of course, not. when we start thinking about it more, we can take a different take to it. But instinctively, we can perceive that person as a threat. Two things that come to mind is that will that change the world order that we are experiencing? Would this produce a new leader out of the group? And secondly, um, what is my role then? Am I becoming weaker by this? Uh, and that's why we know also with the flat teams or teams that are self-managed, they are very consciously rotating these leadership roles so that they take away out of their awareness or out of their experience that somebody becomes continuously stronger and stronger that e eventually might be threatening to the rest of the group. But one maybe uh, example that I can bring as your uh, show uh, example makes me think about is a situation of a team that I was coaching, a management team that I was coaching that momentarily were had to operate without a leader. The leader had left and they were collectively uh, leading a certain part of the organization, each of them in their own area. And without a leader, still they had to come together on topics that they recognize themselves as collectively they have to resolve them. They couldn't do it in isolation. That was for the entirety of the department. It was about cross-functional work. Actually, to say it even more explicitly, the absence of them coming together was producing difficulties for the entirety of the department that could not be resolved unless they would come together. And even though they wanted to and they have the meetings and they, uh, they had all of the structure to do so, within those spaces, they could not challenge each other. They were very polite. Therefore, they were not effective in coming together despite them being engaged in it and dedicating the time and energy. It was very difficult in the room to do exactly what is needed in resolving those differences by working together. And that would happen outside of the room. So towards others, on in smaller settings, they would complain about things that occurred in the room and were not resolved, but they were not bringing them in the room. Now, in coaching, in consulting, in leadership discussions, we all know this is not what you should do. We very often describe why you should not do all of these behaviors and we blame people that they do this. But I think we need to understand that it's a very difficult, that it's not for for nothing that these things universally don't occur, aside of saying we are not having the right leaders in place. We need to understand what happens in a group that lacks leadership and how difficult it is for the group to produce leadership and sustain it, as we said earlier on, without this leadership being seen as threatening and without seeing as this becomes a hierarchical leadership that will take over the group itself, right? So I think it's important to understand this. To share the experience of coaching that team I had in that coaching setting, an exercise that we would run, very classic exercise where the team needed to uh, do feedback exchange of, um, with each other, but in a one-to-one in -one setting and in a rotation way so that everyone speaks to everyone within a certain time. When I introduced the exercise, one of the team members, and actually somebody who in other moments would not necessarily take the lead or initiate uh, suggestions and so forth, said, I think actually we should have this exercise collectively all together. So with, with everyone's presence, this exchange. And I think it's very important that actually we share our intentions and our aspirations and our, our career progress, uh, actually. So when that was said, Everyone agreed to it. Everyone was enthusiastic about it. 
And of course, uh, in such a setting, I realized this is the right thing to do if that's something that is, it seemed to me so fascinating that there is so much appetite for it and such a need to do. And it felt as if they now had the opportunity to speak about something that was so, they were so preoccupied with and they didn't. That's where I think it relates to this idea that there might have been a preoccupation with their mental ranking related to what would be maybe future roles or what are our, how our current intents and ways of working might impact the future. So let's make that explicit and get this ranking out of the way in order to collaborate. That's how I reflected on it. What was remarkable in this moment was of how candid and honest was that sharing. I, I can't judge that, of course, whether people indeed shared exactly how, um, what their true aspiration was. But I think that the team was creating in that moment a certain level of clarity of their own territory about whose role current and future is in such a way that they found some sort of trust. Whether that would be the prediction of the future or not, it didn't matter in that moment. What mattered was that if someone would say, yes, I have an aspiration of one day of leading this team, people would approach that by even giving their point of view about whether indeed you have the capability or not and how I wish you to operate today in order to do so. And I thought this was an exercise in a way they were replacing the missing leader themselves so that they could actually create some sort of acceptable order in the moment where they could operate. Where I could get data afterwards that it was helpful is that indeed then they could engage after this event in the continued discussions after that, they could engage with a healthy conflict and confrontation, which by the way, already started by saying, yeah, I can see you as a leader or not in, in this group. That's quite confrontational actually to be able to say that. They could engage with this level of confrontation in the problem solving and in decisions that they have to make without being that being perceived as threatening to each other, but as something that was helpful in order to have a good outcome of the conversation. So listening to this and also picking up that it's present in basically every group, in every group dynamic, in every place where people have to work or be together. What would you suggest, uh, Petros, what, what can you do about it? I mean, if, if, it, if it sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's hamper you from being effective. So what would be ways maybe to work with this or to bring this to a place where it is actually helping a team forward? Yeah, I think first it's important to think on an individual level how such a topic or such phenomena may have an impact. What can we do on an individual level when exercising our own uh, leadership or taking up a role in certain directions or in groups? So if we find ourselves thinking about ranking, whether that's in tenure or age or seniority, we need to also ask ourselves, what is it in those attributes that may hinder us from displaying a certain type of leadership or that might um, be of impact when interacting with others? On one hand, we want to be very much aware of the social structure around us, uh, how differences in levels with the people that we interact do have an effect. But on the other hand, we should not assume that these are exactly right or that these become an unwritten role in order to take leadership. Two extremes that we should avoid on one hand is to be completely driven by those seniority differences and apply them as a rule of law. That is something that happens most 
uh, of the time in all of us. But we should question ourselves, why do we think it's not relevant to, or it would be uh, offensive if I would speak up in this particular moment when my level is lower? Or why do I think because I have certain years in the role more than others, I should be the one that has the leading point of view in this? So that is one extreme. On the other hand, to speak up in an equal level as if we are all equal uh, and not acknowledging the seniority differences could also uh, be disruptive or maybe not respectful in certain ways. And so we should also avoid those two extremes. I will give an example from my experience. When I was a coach in a leadership program, I joined a team of other executive coaches. So we were a number of us. But as soon as I entered, there was an established team of coaches that had been working on the program for many, many years. And even though I had experience of a similar uh, ways of working, a similar program, I entered the team and I started uh, making suggestions to the peer coaches from my own experiences without respecting actually their experience, their seniority in the program, maybe also their seniority overall as coaches compared to to myself. So even though it came from a maybe enthusiastic place of wanting to contribute, maybe it came from a place of me not wanting to be really the newbie, but to appear as if I am as experienced as my peers, that led to maybe an overly enthusiastic or maybe even dominant presence in that team. In a way, it implicitly discredited their own contribution or their own experiences. So uh, thinking back, I could have first taken a few days and weeks or whatever to maybe ask questions and, and understand how they have been working so far, maybe give more of the experience that I, that I do want to learn from their expertise before I would go into my own suggestions. Now, again, uh, if you think about how pressured we might be in times, how limited interactions we might have. Sometimes we don't have this opportunity. All of these different aspects need to happen instinctively in the same moment. But I was not making use of their experience, but also uh, giving them the sense uh, that their experience mattered to me. I'm sure if we were to speak about that, they would not necessarily feel as uh, offended or so. But it, I'm talking about an instinctive interaction that in the moment brings up certain type of resistance. Another example that I have experienced in my uh, consulting practice is where you would have a, a strategic role or a chief of staff role or, or a role in a management team that is being held by someone who is less experienced, much younger, with less tenure, right? And I have seen people taking up uh, such roles with a lot of authority, um, one, because they do, they do manage very structural and quite influential processes for an executive team, uh, but also because in many moments they have to operate on an equal level as anyone else in the team. But what often then happens is that we make that equality as a fixed level in the team. It doesn't change based on the conversation. So I've seen some people who would take up such a role in a management team or in an executive team as if they have the same level of expertise with other executives that hold much deeper expertise and also much broader uh, accountability on decisions, uh, as if those differences are not there. And I think that's when it becomes very tricky. So when we think now uh, in terms of a management team uh, or, or a team overall that contains so many level differences, 
we have to think what is the mechanism based on differentiation in terms of decision stakes. So are we all going to have the same decision rights on a certain topic? Are we all going to contribute in a similar way? And that's a very difficult question. So both on an individual and on a team level, we need to think what is the best use of our role in this particular moment, in this particular context. So not who we are overall as a professional identity or whether, you know, in every single conversation, all of our needs and all of our aspirations are being fulfilled. We should more think about in this particular moment for our team, do we need to operate uh, with roles and decision-making mechanisms that are fixed and that relate to the hierarchical structure of the team? Or do we need to think who will eventually make a decision? Could we have one or a few of us who will be the decision makers and so forth? This is something that is very familiar with most teams, but most of the time we forget it because we naturally get into a conversation. We naturally surface a very important business topic. And then we forget that in this particular moment, we have to basically differentiate our decision rights and our decision-making process. And maybe building on, we need to find the right balance because I also hear in some of the examples that, that it can be helpful to be explicit about certain tasks and to be explicit about also taking up leadership in, in certain tasks. That's right. So we should avoid that either we have a very fixed hierarchical structure whereby we know roles and responsibilities and who does what. But on the other hand, we approach things in a complete democratic way and everyone is equal and everyone has the same right. So we need to balance those two extreme ways of functioning, either in discussing and contributing or in, in the actual decision-making. And the way to do that is at the beginning of the discussion of a topic, we need to actually take a few minutes, and it doesn't have to be really long, but to take a few min minutes to understand what is the topic about, what is the implications of this topic, and who are best contributors and decision makers. And based on that, come up with some sort of rules of the discussion, if I may, which are not necessarily fixed and strict, but they give us a sense of more awareness. Because if that awareness doesn't exist, then this whole unconscious social laws that we have learned to live by take place where they may not be very effective for the team and they may not surface the right voices in the conversation. Thank you, Petros. And, and again, also in my introduction, I said, well, once you see it, it's very difficult to unsee it. And I think that also happened when, when, when Petros and I started to talk about it and started to see it present in the teams that we work with. And so basically looking back in our conversation, we, we talked about if you get people together and you have a fixed, even if you have a fixed hierarchy, among people, there will always become what we call this hidden hierarchy, which is basically based in, in what we call ranking in the mind, where if you are with a group of people, you rank yourself in where, are, where am I in ranks in this group, and you also rank the others in this group. And um, what we saw uh, in practice is basically how this ranking in the mind becomes a very important driver of team dynamics, uh, not only team dynamics, but also the effectiveness of the team. And there you have a kind of a couple of outer spaces that, that are almost paradoxical. One is that this, this, this ranking, this hidden hierarchy starts to take over, becomes very important. And in that case, you see sometimes teams where people 
take decisions which actually shouldn't be taken by them or have a very important role or voice which might not be helpful for the team. The other side of it and the other side of the spectrum is basically that teams cannot accept this this ranking or cannot stand it. And then you get this thrive for equality where everyone should be equal and, and all decisions should be taken equal. And, and you cannot stand up. And the moment that you stand up, you will be probably be rejected by the team. And if you look at these two outer perspectives, uh, I think the last thing we talked about is how, how can you deal with it? How can you work with it as a team? And I think, as you said, Petrol said, the first step is very important one, but also a very obvious one is to be aware of it. The moment that you see it, you can also see what the dynamics are that it creates and you can see how it plays out in a team and you can actually deal with it in a different way. And the other thing is the moment that you see it and you become very mindful of how to use these ranking, you can also see where it's where it's possible to differentiate and, and, and accept that you're not all equal because, for example, you have uh, uh, different skills, different experiences, different backgrounds and where people can sometimes take the lead and are, are also accepted by the team to step into that leading role. Well, maybe in other situations, in other decisions that need to be taken, other challenges that the team face, someone else takes up that role. And then you get more like a rotating leadership where basically leadership is something that you take based not on the mental ranking that you have, but based on the skills that you have or the experience that you bring into the room. And then uh, you start basically balancing out the equality on the one hand and the other one at the overarching mental ranking where it is not effective. And you see how you can thrive as a team, as a group of people somewhere in the middle. That's a great summary, Varden. I think um, it's one of these topics that when one of these phenomena that when you discover it, you think, yeah, of course, of course we do that all the time. And if you don't really ask the why question, you think, it's the most natural thing that it occurs. But once you really put it under the microscope, like once you approach this as someone external, like an anthropologist visiting uh, a certain group of people and you ask yourself the question, why do we do this? Then you discover different functions and different meaning of it that actually creates a lot of awareness as to how we can approach things. Yes. Great. And then it becomes like how I like to see like an extra glasses you can put up by looking at the team. So you can hear what they say, you can see how they're organized, but now you can also see how they basically interact and find some kind of a, a reason for it or, or a deeper understanding of it. So thank you very much, uh, Petros. Thank you very much for uh, sharing basically this piece of your very interesting research. And it was great to, to, to hear about it, but also to, to tell how this can be used in, in, in daily practice of developing teams, but also just leading teams or being part of a team. Thank you, Varden. I enjoyed it also. I really like how we also experimented with our own roles in this when we're thinking about our own lateral collaboration here. Thank you very much to all listeners. Hope that you will listen also to the other ones. 